Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Yeah, Nina, how are you? Good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? Not too bad. This has been the safety week, hasn't it? I know. We've done mock courts. We've had full court appeals. We've got yeah. prosecutions. Yeah, a bit sick of that term, safety now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not feeling that safe with it myself either. But look, let's jump into the exciting news. The, um, yeah, lots of big items. federal government has really kicked off and has managed to reach agreement on two major pieces of legislation, what we call the Pocock Settlement, which is the um, Secure Jobs and Better Wages. Passing through the Senate Passing through the Senate on Saturday. It's a lot. To, Pocock hasn't done a great deal, I've got to tell you, but he's done a little bit, and it comes down to yeah. these sort of key factors. The really big stinker that sits in this is the single interest multi-employment enterprise agreement. You can really forget the rest. There's some, <laughs> I'm not going to think very much of that. <laughs> so the truth in it is that people under 20, 20 employees won't be subjected to it. Ones up to 50 will have some levels of protection. They can opt out of the multi-bargaining. Yeah, the union's right a capacity to veto a multi it's gone. It's gone. Which I is, always love that. Any yeah, and rights, anyone's anyone's taking right. their rights from the union. <laughs> but what they've done is that Pocock and the government have come up with an expression which has no legal standing in it. So it has no legal history called reasonable compatibility, which means that you can only have a multi-employee agreement if there's reasonable compatibility. Between the employers. And yeah. the problem with that is exactly why the Workplace Relations Act and Fair Work Act was introduced is the exact opposite of that is to provide enterprise level leverage by the way in which you employ people differently to execute your purpose of business. So this is really turning the wheel all the way back and this is what we've said back to the old general award. So it's disappointing but the upside is the unions almost have no power anymore and they have such low membership their opportunity of doing this and being successful is really slim I think. Yeah but it'll be good if the government can finally give us some clarification about what and look, that'll be good. And also the intractable bargaining orders, which will be good, which after about nine months of not being able to reach Yeah, they've extended that now. Yeah. So there's some good stuff. And we'll get out to you once this comes through in its final form, a detailed fact sheet so that it makes sense to you and you can utilise it. But at the moment, it's much like Matt and I talked about a few weeks ago. Let's move on to the Respective Work Act, which has passed, passed which is really good. So the positive yeah. duty to prevent any form of sexual harassment or discrimination yep. is in. Nina and I have spoken about before that positive obligation increases a systematic governance structure you must have in the organisation. The plaintiff law firms have been successful in reinserting back a cost jurisdiction. Yeah, cost neutrality is gone at the moment, Yeah, up for review in March. So, Nina, you do nearly all our discrimination work. What does that look like for litigation? Well, it's going to be really the same. It's going to be expensive. Each party will take their own costs and it looks like we're probably going to see more federal claims because yeah, I think why that's would the they pursue thing. the state claims? Yeah, and we've seen that. So in the, in the, state, the states don't have a cost jurisdiction. You've got yeah. to show that it was vexatious or it was had no reasonable prospect of success in state jurisdictions, although Queensland and their industrial relations <laughs> legislation is changing that. But what's really important about this is all plaintiff leg- litigation will come through the federal jurisdiction yeah. and the first letter of demand will be 27 pages long and it will have cost $10,000. And so the actual cost of litigating will go up and the yeah. cost of settlement will go up. Review because of the Jackie Lambie imbroglio, I don't know how to describe it, on the, the 23rd of March or something like that, isn't it? Or March 2023. 2023. Um, so That's the, the Yeah, the yeah. government has said... <laughs> Look, it's with the Attorney General's Department. Whatever they decide in March is what 
we'll go in. All right. And, look, the last part is ACT have adopted the Boland Report for Safety Law, but yeah, they've added something it. there. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. Now sexual assault is going to be notifiable in the ACT, which similar to what we're going to have in Victoria. Yeah. But it's a big step because it really means any kind of threat or inappropriate touching will now have to be immediately reported to the ACT government. Yes, yeah. and that's, by the way, that's not... It's not just actually, it's suspected. It's, yeah, threat. And it threat adopts off. what is the common law version of sexual assault, which is an act, an intentional act, yeah. but it means threat, it means attempt, it means all sorts of things. And Nina and I were talking about what yeah. threats would look like. Pretty ugly when you start thinking about uh, that. It's, it's horrible, but it means that employees can't just dismiss a complaint. If you now become aware of it, you have to raise it with the regulator. And with the respect at work, passing as well, all this plays into whether you have a hostile environment and it all yeah, connects. and see, respect to work's hostile environment is a really important part of this because if, if you have an environment where people say sexualised commentary, they treat women differently, yep. that's a hostile environment. And that's, you're condoning it. And you're yeah. condoning it then and you notify, you're going to be prosecuted in the For ACT. Sure. Yeah. So interesting stuff. ACT, thin end of the wedge, I think. We'll start seeing yeah, all these elevated. through all the other jurisdictions. Yeah. Okay, let's jump on now to O'Dwyer's case, which is the person that the most recent federal court decision by Justice Gooding. This is a really simple set of facts. I'm not going to waste a lot yeah. of time, but there were two brothers, business became insolvent, and they asked for fee payments. And the test about that is whether they're actually employees or not employees. And in respect of one of the brothers, the AAT, which was the, the original jurisdiction that heard it, said, look, there's an oral contract of types, but we need to go back into the multifactorial testing because we can't define with clarity what that yeah. contract is. The right pathway under the High Court decision. Yeah, it's okay, what the, the High Court said to do. When in front of Justice Gooding and for reasons which only that judge will know, the judge decided, well, no, like personnel made this comment. The High Court in personnel made this aside and was an aside that said, look, oral contracts often have terms which you imply after the fact based on conduct. Now, those behaviours after the conduct are actually a multifactorial test. Yeah. And so what the judge said is, no, you've got to define the contract whenever it finally was resolved to determine whether there was a contract. Now, the High Court decision around both contractors and employees and around casuals and permanents was very clear. It is determining it at the time the contract was entered into. So this is a really dumb approach that's been taken and it's going to make it incredibly complex because the very terms that create the multifactorial test, what clothing were they wearing, how yeah. were they paid, what tax deducted, what insurance was taken, all those things which imply into a contract of employment are in fact the multifactorial test. Yeah. So we still say, I think Nina, Matt and I are really clear about this, it is the time of contracting that is important. Yes. This decision is not a right decision but no. is the leading decision outside of the High Court at the moment because the rest are fair work decisions. Can I just say the answer is have very clear contracts yeah. for casual, permanent, contractors, yeah. employees, whenever you do at the time at which the offer is made and accepted and none of this needs to bother Yeah, none of these handshake deals. <laughs> Cause these problems. Well, let's go to the next case because this is a really great decision by yeah, the commissioner. It's a, a small one that kind of slips through. Yeah, this yeah. is Jetta Gardens. And then maybe over to you, talk about what the facts are. So Jetta Gardens is an aged care provider and during the COVID pandemic and probably currently now, they've 
given lawful and reasonable directions for their employees to do rat tests before they come to work, reasonable given the high risk and vulnerable clients. And what this case found is because... And by the way, in that particular retirement home, that had a significant yeah. amount of deaths. So yeah, I just... It's really bad. Yeah. But what was really interesting in this case is I think it was the commission said that because it was a direction and related to work, the obligation to pay for those rat tests actually fell with the employer because it is a safety protocol mandated by the employer. And and, they, and this is something they did before they came to work. So they yeah. actually had to attend do it before they came mm-hmm. to work and the question was around wages. Yeah. So it has huge implications across many different industries because many employees don't pay for rat tests for one, but other protocols too, like any vaccines that were mandated, drug and alcohol testing, anything related to safety that you say to your employees you have to do, this case basically says the obligation to pay for that is yours. It goes beyond just PPE. That's right. So when we talk about PPE, that's what the safety legislation talks about. So this is as employment law, and it's good law, okay? Yeah. If I require... Sense, yeah. yeah, now, I want you to think about this because you're looking, when you go to many awards, that may be pre-employment time, overtime. So you've got to think about how you actually do this. Yeah. yeah. Actually, there were a bunch of cases where setting up things beforehand counted as work, and there's underpayments to do with all the banks and things like that. Yeah. So, so it's look, heading down that path. Yeah, too. just imagine if it's overtime you're actually paying someone, mm. then why wouldn't you have someone do it as they came through the door for work? So I want you to think yeah. about it anyway. It's a great case. It is really good law, and it's a great decision by the Commissioner. Okay, let's move on to what is wage theft. I forgot about wage theft. God, I was going to go on to the next topic. <laughs> Now, Nina, in Queensland and Victoria, we have state-based wage theft legislation and, of course, we've got the Fair Work Act. What's the difference? Well, the Fair Work Act has very significant penalties, I think around $3 million, but in Victoria and Queensland, you can go to jail. Yeah, and this it is... criminalises behaviour. Yeah, so this is the first prosecution in Victoria. Yep. And how much is it about? The underpayments were only around $7,000 in total for yeah. four employees, penalty rates, wages and superannuation, I think. But what's really interesting, Andrew, is over the last couple of years, the Wage Inspectorate has worked with giant organisations, unis, coals, things like that, where it's millions of dollars of underpayments and now they've flipped a switch because these criminal wage laws have come in effect and they're saying it doesn't matter how small or big, we're going to come after you if you're dishonestly underpaying people. Yeah, and this has a 10-year jail sentence going yeah. on. So the decision-maker in this is really in the gun, isn't it? Yeah, the prosecution is against the Massenden Lounge and their owner. So yeah. he's at risk of 10 years imprisonment and a $1 million fine, I believe it is. Okay, so there you go. That's both in Victoria and Queensland. I think it's really important because what we're seeing in the labour-based states is this ramping up of protection, particularly in, you know, Andrews will now be third term, fellas that could be in a second when she comes through. This is a time of significant strength in those labour states who are bringing home the bacon for their labour constituency. So expect more of this type of behaviour. Okay, the big one for the (laughs) day, major theme. All right. Ideological hazard. Yeah, I want to talk about this and Nina and I, it's interesting, I just did this presentation for Mates in Construction. Hi to those guys, (laughs) by the way, and also to Debbie who retired, who's not from there. G'day, Debbie, I should say that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What we've always talked about is Burke and Suncorp and cases where you look at the nature in the, de- the gradual decompensating behaviour of a person as a result of psychological hazards. Yeah, where there's obvious signs yeah. that something's and wrong. And so you've got 
a Birkenstein court that said if a reasonable person can observe it under the obligations to monitor health, to try and performance manage the person and be wrong, Kubat says, yeah, it has to be a reasonable yeah. person, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah. But what we're seeing here is in the common law, which will flow back into safety law, the High Court made a decision in Kamazarevs that basically said this, if your workplace is inherently dangerous, then you have a positive duty to intervene, not to wait what they called sentinel symptoms. Yeah. Now, Kamazarev was a case of a woman who worked in a sexual assault unit. Yeah, in lawyer. the prost- DPP. DPP. Yeah. yeah. And obviously was exposed to some fairly horrific stuff yeah. and became unwell. But nobody noticed that at the time. And what Kamazarev said is it doesn't matter, you don't notice it. You place a person, you identify they're in a hazardous environment, you know it's a high-risk environment, yeah. then the controls are a positive duty to ensure the yeah. person is safe to rotate them to check in on yep. the person regularly, do all those sort of things. And then we had Bercy, which is the Victorian Court of Appeal case, and maybe you can have a quick chat about it. Yeah, okay. so that involved a teacher who hurt himself because his workload increased from 22 to 25 students. His stress and anxiety increased because of the increase in noise, and they said in that case, although it wasn't a breach of the proactive duty to do with primary breaches, they did fail to say that because there wasn't any signs, there was nothing they should have done, yeah. which isn't correct at all. Yeah, so the county the county court dismissed it on the basis of, look, nothing to see here. How can, yeah. how can, how can they intervene? What the Court of Appeal said is, look, you're not going to win because you're not, you're not that damaged. It's yeah. a short answer and there's no causation. But what the Court of Appeal did do is they gave real clarity around what Kamezarov for the High Court case mm-hmm. means. And so they looked at an example and said, look, and, and this shows you what an inherently dangerous workplace can be. It doesn't have to be something as challenging as working in a sexual assault unit. It can be working in a school under intense pressures and yeah. changes in pressures. The thing is safety law says when you change the manner in which someone's work, you must consult yeah. and reassess the risk. Not dealt with because common law lawyers don't really understand safety and the court wasn't really addressed in that, but it's very significant for safety law. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me why it's not well known because if you think about it, Andrew, if there is a physical hazard, if we have to do a risk assessment for anything, we always consider whether there is a hazard and put in controls to prevent the damage. Now, though, it seems like people are saying, no, just because it's a psychological hazard, let's wait till someone is damaged and then deal with it, which doesn't make sense because obviously psychological damage is long more long-lasting than physical damage. And we, know the psych- sense. and we know the psychological hazards are around these things. They're around certainly exactly what you need to do. Yeah. They're around workload. They're around yeah. increase in workload, not being given enough work, being given work beneath or above what you're doing. They're around recognition, recognition and reward. Work design. Yeah, so it is work work design. design. So as you change the work design for someone, these are things you need to say. Look, when I change that work design, do I inherently increase the level of risk to the person? And if I do increase the level of risk, and this is what Bercy is saying, when I increase that level, I'm creating an inherently dangerous workplace. Yeah. Okay? So it's not when you're out working in a psychiatric unit in a place which has incredibly high stress and emissions. It's not working, just working in a prison. It's not the obvious places you think which are inherently high risk. It is as you change that work design and there is a knowledge that that adheres with that a higher level of risk, there is this proactive duty to step in, identify the levels of risk that exist. And put in suitable controls. And one of those controls is checking in. Yeah, but... 
please don't think that is the only thing you need to do. Like I think there is a common misconception with a lot of employers that says, look, I've said, you know, how are you going? They didn't say anything, so it's fine. I've done my due diligence. But that's not the case. That's not enough. Yeah. And look, this is what came out through our mock court too, that, oh, you know, I, I said, you know, are you okay? And he didn't say anything, so there was nothing more I could do. It's just not the case at all. So let's set out what the principles are. Okay, I want to nail this because this mm-hmm. is one of the most important safety cases this year. Psychological hazards are now understood and they're nothing more than determining whether you do everything that is reasonably practical in respect of work design. That's it. And work violence, you know, sexual harassment, any form of aggression, those sort of things. But Work design is the big one. Work design goes to reasonably practical. Yeah. So when we look at the way you work, are there psychological hazards that exist in work? When I change the manner in which I work, I necessarily create a hazard. Okay. So it is a trigger point that says okay, this is the beginning of reasonably practical, I must then determine the risk. Now, I can't do that by just staring or thinking about no. it. I've actually you got to, to go... Do a risk assessment. A risk assessment. And the obligations under safety law is when I do the risk assessment is to consult with yeah. the affected person. Because how else would you know? That's right. But do you notice in psychological hazards no one does that? Yeah. So I say to Nina, look, I'm going to need you to work on Saturday as well. Yeah. And Nina looks at me and goes, no. But if I did, I'd have to say, okay, Nina, can you do this for this next two weeks? And what is it going to look like for you? What are things you're going to miss out on? How can you? We're going to have to do an assessment of whether it's viable. Yeah, okay? by talking to me, not just doing it in your head, like, oh, I've accounted for this. So once I've determined what the risks are, then I must have a set of controls. Now, these things, like in the New Queensland Industrial Relations Legislature, you better document it. And here, because certainty is such a key issue in psychological hazards, once I've had that discussion with Nina, I say, okay, this is for this period of time. This is what we're going to do and this is how we manage it. So Nina knows how I'm going to support her, which is I might say I'm going to drop in and catch up with her once a week and see how we're going. Let's look at where the noise is going. I'll see if I can get a teacher's aide to come and help and take some kids away. Like there's some obvious things that you can do about it, but the check-ins are really important. That's what Bercy and that's what Kameza offer about. And, yes, they apply to common law, but this is a positive duty to intervene and it's really nothing more than an explanation of what the safety law already requires, which is when I place someone in a position of inherent risk by the change in the nature of work or the nature of the work itself, at that stage I have a positive duty not only to monitor health but to ensure the workplace is actually safe in the beginning. So that's how they interact. So great piece of law. I'm really pleased it's come through. Mm. Great that the common law are gradually kept catching up with safety law, yeah. but better still for us to inform ourselves how safety law actually works. And we'll see that played out in the problem that we've got up ahead. So let's go to the problem later. <laughs> okay. Alice was offered a job with FamReach. Yes, FamReach, I did that. a weird name. I made it up. (laughs) Incorporated. A not-for-profit funded by state government to deal with family abuse. Clients referred to them almost always women who had suffered domestic violence and sexual abuse. FamReach prided itself on diversity and embedded a quota that 40% of outreach work must have lived experience. Alice was made an oral offer of employment. The offer was certain in respect of her hourly rate, which was around 26% above the award. 
She initially worked 38 hours a week. Her job was to partner with the police, ambulance and CATT teams, supporting harmed women in the north of Melbourne. She had to find them safe lodging and support networks to make them safe. There was no rotation of work. Her social work supervisor, not her work supervisor, but both were employed by FamReach, found her a calm and resilient woman. Her immediate work supervisor found her reliable, but found she struggled to read and record histories. When asked why, she said that reading the detail triggered her own trauma. Her supervisor counselled her that she must or she may lose her job. It was a core requirement of her role. Over the next few months, she took time off, worked half days, and FamReach paid her for the work she did. After a formal warning two months later about record keeping, they said they wouldn't offer her any more shifts as she was a casual worker. All right. Well, look, here's the first question. A fellow brought an unfair dismissal claim saying she was a permanent employee. Would she succeed given she was paid sick leave, she was on permanent roster on full-time worker, the job she applied for was a permanent job, her flexibility of attendance was requested by her, business permitted, and didn't pay her any extra loading. So you gave it away in the question. Did I? Yeah. There's so many indicators that she's a permanent employee. <laughs> well, let's go back to the analysis, okay, because this is this is personal contracting. Yes. Was there an offer of employment at the time? And the answer yes. to all of this is actually there was. Mm. So she applied for a job which was a permanent job at the time she applied for it and yes, it had a wage. It, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's but clear. But if it wasn't and the court said, oh, I'd need more, what the most recent case of O'Dwyer said, well, you'd have to actually look towards what are the post-time of offer and acceptance to determine whether there are times that would imply a contract of employment. Yeah. Employment. <laughs> and the bottom line is, so this question is really is, did she, was she a regular or systematic casual? So that's another part. Or was yeah. she a permanent employment for the purpose of un- unfair dismissal? Because otherwise she would be excluded from making unfair dismissal quite. The answer for that, that jurisdictional test is she was definitely one or the other, without a doubt. Yeah. So she could. But more importantly, it shows how complex this gets. Okay. And it also shows the reason I've done this question is to show how silly you get trying to analyse it when, in fact, the first question is, if I offer you permanent employment and you accept it at a set rate, that has sufficient certainty at law to be the contract so you don't have to consider all the rest of it. Yeah. So it was definitely it's it really. was definitely an unfair dismissal because they started to treat her as a casual. Only at the end when they wanted to get rid of it. Which yeah. leads into the second question because the second question is, would Alice have successful general protections claims if she alleged she was treated adversely for requesting flexible work because of mental health? with mental health being protected attribute in its own right, and she raised safety concerns about record-keeping. But to be perfectly honest, she had a workplace right to be treated as a permanent employee. That's the first thing. Yeah, so and they, she was able to. Yeah, so that. she was able to actually launch general protections based on the misclassification of her employment and mistreatment. But I think the answer is... Yeah, I mean, mental health is considered a protected attribute under disability. She raised a complaint about her employment. They're clearly discriminating against yeah. her. Like she would well, that's the difficulty. So here's a person, and this is cuts to one of the most complex pieces of law around discrimination, which I forgot to warn you about before we started doing this, which is if a person can't do the inherent requirements because they suffer from a particular attribute, doesn't mean you can't terminate their employment. The issue is, can you make reasonable adjustments around it? But they haven't even done that assessment. No, they've done yet. nothing. They've so done they nothing at all. Be able to succeed on that? Yeah, anyway. not at all. Not You'd at all. You have to do an IME and say she wasn't fit for work. And this is interesting because in social work, it's very common to hire people with lived experience so that they can connect with people, which means you're taking people with 
previous, previous history of mental health to look after people with mental health, and it's incredibly successful. Really? But I the issue of exposing them to more trauma. Well, that's that's exactly the question, but yeah. that means they have lower resilience and higher levels of risk, and so the commensurate issue comes back in yeah. and says, well, then how do I care for these people with big controls in place? Okay, and I think that's dangerously into the third question, which <laughs> is um, would FAM reach have safety and common law yeah. risk around psychological habits given she obliquely raised her mental health? I think she very clearly said that she had mental health issues and they were triggering her. So, yeah. yeah, like you said, even before she raised that, they should have had controls in place knowing her history and having just done a risk assessment about. Yeah, I think when someone tells you, A, I have lived experience, B, reading these records triggers me and creates mental health issues for me. very high risk. And then then you direct them to do it and don't find another method of doing it. And threaten their employment at the same time. (laughs) I think you've got a lot of trouble. So that's how commensurates will play in. And can you see now how psychological hazards, how I allocate work, how I require work to be done, is such a feature of the way the world will be under safety law in the next few years in a way we've never looked at it before. Now, if Alice, question four, if Alice made a psychological injury workers' compensation claim after being directed to record record keep, would she have been successful? So let's start again. We know that here work was triggering a mental health issue. Yes, it's directly related to employment. Now, remember, there's two different tests in workers' compensation. She came in with a mental health issue and therefore work has to be the substantial cause. And exacerbated. Yeah. yeah. So we've got that. Mm -hmm. So now that we have... A valid mental health claim, the next thing is, okay, she's got it, work caused it. Was there any form of reasonable management action that sat around the record keeping? Now, it's not unreasonable to require someone to comply with a core part of a business, okay? Yes, but also when someone raises a concern, wouldn't it be requiring them to do their job with controls in place to protect them? Well, there's two parts of it, isn't it? So if you accept that it creates a mental health issue for the person and that's a protected attribute, as Nina said, the next question is, is there an adjustment that can be made? Never, never thought through. Yeah. But secondly, the idea that you can just summarily dismiss someone because that was the real thing. That's not reasonable management action anyway. Remember, reasonable management action has two... Like ever a warning as well and then tough fighter. That's true. But there's two fairness tests. Okay, the first one is, is the manner in which you're having the discussion with the person fair? Well, actually, the trigger for doing it was fair, but the manner in which it was done was not fair. And then was the disposition or the end result fair? And the answer is no. So although it was right and fair to commence the discussion, the manner in which the discussion was commenced failing to look at the discriminatory base, make reasonable adjustments. Or do a risk assessment. Do anything at all about it. Blah. Gone. So the answer is she'd have a very successful claim. But the problem with this successful claim is it's unlikely she's going to come back to work and therefore the premium impact on this is incredibly significant. Wherever you are in Australia, if you're a five million remuneration business, you're looking at nothing short than three to four hundred thousand as a minimum premium over the life cycle of premium up to a million dollars, depending which state you're in. So in Victoria, in a high risk area, you could be up to as much as a million dollars for that. So and if they had only done the risk assessment. If they'd only gone back to the fundamentals. And that's, I guess, what we're here today talking about. If you go back to the fundamentals, which is someone identifies a hazard. Then you intervene. Then you, in yeah, you say, what the is the level assessment. of risk? Okay. Yep. What are the controls? Now, in discrimination law, you've got the risk, okay? So yep. the, one of the controls there is what are the adjustments you as an organisation, as a matter of law, must make so they can do the inherent requirement of the job 
or can't she provide reasonable adjustments to do the inherent requirements of the job? There are no ones that could be which would be reasonable. None of that assessment's been done here. Yeah. All right, Nina, that's an interesting week. Yeah. Challenging week. And um, <laughs> next week, who knows what we're going to be doing, but there is, I think, next week, the $2 million fine is going to be a major part of it, isn't it? the scaffolding fine that came out this week. I haven't had a chance to read the judgment to see how real it is, but yeah. this week we had a $2 million fine for, for a fall from scaffold. I think we'll probably see a couple more slip through before the end of the year, I think. Yeah, yeah. and our last one is on the 16th this year, so we'll see you next week. Thanks Cheers. for Bye-bye. Give us a thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> we're on thumbs up, okay?